0: Chapter Two of a Son of the Middle Border by Hamlin Garland. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The McClintocks. The members of my mother's family must have been often at our home during my father's military service in the South, but I have no mental pictures of them till after my father's homecoming in sixty five. Their names were familiar, were indeed like bits of old-fashioned song. Richard was a fine and tender word in my ear, but David and Luke, Deborah and Samantha, and especially Hugh, suggested something alien as well as poetic. They all lived somewhere beyond the hills which walled our coolly on the east, in a place called Salem, and I was eager to visit them, for in that direction my universe died away in a luminous mist of unexplored distance. I had some notion of its nearby loveliness, for I had once viewed it from the top of the tall bluff, which stood like a warder at the gate of our valley. And when one bright morning my father said, "'Bell, get ready, and we'll drive over to Grandad's,' we all became greatly excited. In those days people did not call, they went visitin'. The women took their knitting and stayed all the afternoon, and sometimes all night, no one owned a carriage. Each family journeyed in a heavy farm wagon, with the father and mother riding high on the wooden spring seat, while the children jounced up and down on the hay in the bottom of the box, or clung desperately to the sideboards, to keep from being jolted out. In such wise we started our trip to the McClintocks. The road ran to the south and east, around the base of Sugarloaf Bluff, thence across a lovely valley. And over a high wooded ridge, which was so steep that at times we rode above the tree-tops, as Father stopped the horses to let them rest, we children gazed about us with wondering eyes, far behind us lay the lacrosse valley, through which a slender river ran, while before us towered wind-worn cliffs of stone. It was an exploring expedition for us. The top of the divide gave a grand view of wooded hills to the northeast, but Father did not wait for us to enjoy that. He started the team on the perilous downward road, without regard to our wishes, and so we bumped and clattered to the bottom. All joy of the scenery swallowed up in fear of being thrown from the wagon. The roar of a rapid, the gleaming of a long curving stream, a sharp turn through a pair of bars and we found ourselves approaching a low unpainted house, which stood on a level bench overlooking a river and its meadows. There it is, that's Granddad's house," said Mother, and peering over her shoulder I perceived a group of people standing about the open door and heard their shouts of welcome. My father laughed. Looks as if the whole McClintock clan was on parade, he said. It was Sunday and all my aunts and uncles were in holiday dress, and a merry, hearty, handsome group they were. One of the men helped my mother out, and another, a roguish young fellow with a pock-marked face, snatched me from the wagon, and carried me under his arm to the threshold where a short, gray-haired, smiling woman was standing. "'Mother, here's another grandson for you,' he said, as he put me at her feet." She greeted me kindly and led me into the house, in which a huge old man with a shock of perfectly white hair was sitting with a Bible on his knee. He had a rugged face, framed in a circle of gray beard, and his glance was absent-minded and remote. "'Father,' said my grandmother, "'Belle has come. Here is one of her boys.' Closing his book on his glasses to mark the place of his reading, he turned to greet my mother who entered at this moment his way of speech was as strange as his look and for a few moments i studied him with childish intentness his face was rough-hewn as a rock but it was kindly and though he soon turned from his guests and resumed his reading no one seemed to resent it young as i was i vaguely understood his mood he was glad to see us but he was absorbed in something else something of more importance at the moment than the chatter of the family my uncles who came in a few moments later drew my attention and the white-haired dreamer fades from this scene the room swarmed with mcclintock's there was william a black-bearded genial quick-stepping giant who seized me by the collar with one hand and lifted me off the floor as if i were a puppy just to see how much i weighed and david a tall young man, with handsome dark eyes, and a droop at the outer corner of his eyelids, which gave him in repose a look of melancholy distinction. He called me, and I went to him readily, for I loved him at once. His voice pleased me, and I could see that my mother loved him too. From his knee I became acquainted with the girls of the family. Rachel a demure and sweet-faced young woman. And Samantha, the beauty of the family, won my instant admiration, but Deb, as everybody called her, repelled me by her teasing ways. They were all gay as larks, and their hearty clamor, so far removed from the quiet gravity of my grandmother Garland's house, pleased me. I had an immediate sense of being perfectly at home. There wasn't a special reason why this meeting should have been, as it was, a joyous hour. It was, in fact, a family reunion after the war. The dark days of sixty-five were over. The nation was at peace, and its warriors mustered out. True, some of those who had gone down south had not returned. Luke and Walter and Hugh were sleeping in the wilderness, but Frank and Richard were safely at home, and Father was once more the clarion-voiced and tireless young man he had been when he went away to fight. So they all rejoiced, with only a passing tender word, for those whose bodies filled a soldier's nameless grave. There were some boys of about my own age, William's sons, and as they at once led me away down into the grove, I can say little of what went on in the house after that. It must have been still in the warm September weather, for we climbed the slender leafy trees, and swayed and swung on their tip-tops like bobolinks. Perhaps I did not go so very high after all, but I had the feeling of being very close to the sky. The blast of a bugle called us to dinner, and we all went scrambling up the bank and into the front room, like a swarm of hungry shoats responding to the call of the feeder. Aunt Deb, however, shooed us into the kitchen. "'You can't stay here,' she said. "'Mother'll feed you in the kitchen.' Grandmother was waiting for us, and our places were ready, so what did it matter? We had chicken and mashed potato, and nice hot biscuit and honey. Just as good as the grown people had, and could eat all we wanted without our mothers to bother us. I am quite certain about the honey, for I found a bee in one of the cells of my piece of comb, and when I pushed my plate away in dismay, Grandmother laughed and said, That is only a little baby bee. You see, this is wild honey. William got it out of a tree, and didn't have time to pick all the bees out of it. At this point my memories of this day fuse and flow into another visit to the McClintock homestead, which must have taken place the next year, for it is my final record of my grandmother. I do not recall a single word that she said, but she again waited on us in the kitchen, beaming upon us with love and understanding. I see her also smiling in the midst of the joyous tumult which her children and grandchildren always produced when they met. She seemed content to listen and to serve. She was the mother of seven sons, each a splendid type of sturdy manhood, and six daughters, almost equally gifted in physical beauty. Four of the sons stood over six feet in height and were of unusual strength. All of them, men and women alike were musicians by inheritance, and I never think of them without hearing the sound of singing or the voice of the violin. Each of them could play some instrument, and some of them could play any instrument. David, as you shall learn, was the finest fiddler of them all. Grandfather himself was able to play the violin, but he no longer did so. 'Tis the devil's instrument," he said, but I noticed that he always kept time to it. Grandmother had very little learning. She could read and write, of course, and she made frequent pathetic attempts to open her Bible or glance at a newspaper, all to little purpose, for her days were filled from dawn to dark with household duties. I know little of her family history. Beyond the fact that she was born in Maryland and had always been on the border, I have little to record. She was in truth overshadowed by the picturesque figure of her husband. Who was of scotch-irish descent and a most singular and interesting character he was a mystic as well as a minstrel he was an adventist that is to say a believer in the second coming of christ and a constant student of the bible especially of those parts which predicted the heavens rolling together as a scroll and the destruction of the earth notwithstanding his lack of education and his rude exterior he was a man of marked dignity and sobriety of manner. Indeed he was both grave and remote in his intercourse with his neighbors. He was like Ezekiel, a dreamer of dreams. He loved the Old Testament, particularly those books which consisted of thunderous prophecies and passionate lamentations. The poetry of Isaiah, the visions of the apocalypse, formed his emotional outlet. His escape into the world of imaginative literature. The songs he loved best were those which described chariots of flaming clouds, the sound of the resurrection trump, or the fields of amaranth blooming on the other side of Jordan. As I close my eyes and peer back into my obscure childish world, I can see him sitting in his straight-backed, cane-bottomed chair, drumming on the rungs with his fingers keeping time to some inaudible tune, or chanting with faintly moving lips the wondrous words of John or Daniel. He must have been at this time about seventy years of age, but he seemed to me as old as a snow-covered mountain. My belief is that Grandmother did not fully share her husband's faith in the Second Coming, but upon her fell the larger share of the burden of entertainment. When grandad made the traveling brother welcome. His was an open house to all who came along the road, and the fervid chantings, the impassioned prayers of these meetings, lent a singular air of unreality to the business of cooking or plowing in the fields. I think he loved his wife and children, and yet I never heard him speak an affectionate word to them. He was kind, he was just, but he was not tender with eyes turned inward, with a mind filled with visions of angel messengers with trumpets at their lips announcing the day of wrath, how could he concern himself with the ordinary affairs of human life? Too old to bind grain in the harvest field, he was occasionally entrusted with the task of driving the reaper or the mower, and generally forgot to oil the bearings. His absent-mindedness was a source of laughter among his sons and sons-in-law. I've heard Frank say Dad would stop in the middle of a swath to announce the end of the world. He seldom remembered to put on a hat even in the blazing sun of July, and his daughters had to keep an eye on him to be sure he had his vest on right side out. Grandmother was cheerful in the midst of her toil and discomfort. For what other mother had such a family of noble boys and handsome girls? They all loved her, that she knew and she was perfectly willing to sacrifice her comfort to promote theirs. Occasionally Samantha or Rachel remonstrated with her for working so hard, but she only put their protests aside and sent them back to their callers, for when the McClintock girls were at home, the horses of their suitors tied before the gate would have mounted a small troop of cavalry. It was well known that this pioneer wife was rich in children, for she had little else. I do not suppose she ever knew what it was to have a comfortable well-aired bedroom, even in childbirth. She was practical and a good manager, and she needed to be. For her husband was as weirdly unworldly as a farmer could be. He was indeed a sad husbandman. Only the splendid abundance of the soil and the manual skill of his sons, united to the good management of his wife, kept his family fed and clothed. What is the good of laying up a store of goods against the early destruction of the world?" he argued. He was bitterly opposed to secret societies, for some reason which I never fully understood. And the only fury I ever knew him to express was directed against these dens of iniquity. Nearly all his neighbors, like those in our Coulee, were Native American, as their names indicated. The Dudleys, Elwells, and Griswolds came from Connecticut, the Mickle Downies and McKinleys from New York and Ohio, the Baileys and Garlands from Maine. Buoyant, vital, confident, these sons of the border bent to the work of breaking sod and building fence, quite in the spirit of sportsmen. They were always racing in those days, rejoicing in their abounding vigor. With them reaping was a game husking corn a test of endurance and skill, threshing a bee. It was Dudley against a McClintock, a Gilfillan against a Garland, and my father's laughing descriptions of these barn-raisings, harvestings, and rail-splittings of the valley filled my mind with vivid pictures of manly deeds. Every phase of farm-work was carried on by hand, strength and skill counted high, and I had good reason for my idolatry of David and William. With the hearts of woodsmen and fists of sailors, they were precisely the type to appeal to the imagination of a boy. Hunters, athletes, skilled horsemen—everything they did was to me heroic. Frank, smallest of these sons a few, was not what an observer would call puny. He weighed nearly one hundred and eighty pounds, and never met his match except in his brothers. William could outlift him. David could outrun him, and outleap him, but he was more agile than either, was indeed a skilled acrobat. His muscles were prodigious. The calves of his legs would not go into his top boots, and I have heard my father say that once when the tumbling in the little country show seemed not to his liking, Frank sprang over the ropes into the arena, and went around the ring in a series of professional flip-flaps to the unrestrained delight of the spectators. I did not witness this performance, I am sorry to say, but I have seen him do somersaults and turn cartwheels in the dooryard, just from the pure joy of living. He could have been a professional acrobat, and he came near to being a professional ball-player. He was always smiling, but his temper was fickle. Anybody could get a fight out of Frank McClintock at any time, simply by expressing a desire for it. To call him a liar was equivalent to contracting a doctor's bill. He loved hunting, as did all his brothers, but was too excitable to be a highly successful shot, whereas William and David were veritable leather stockings in their mastery of the heavy, old-fashioned rifle. David was especially dreaded at the turkey shoots of the county. William was over six feet in height, weighed 240 pounds, and stood straight as an engine. He was one of the most formidable men of the valley. Even at fifty, as I first recollect him, he walked with a quick lift of his foot, like that of a young Chippewa. To me he was a huge, gentle black bear, but I firmly believed he could whip any man in the world, even Uncle David, if he wanted to. I never expected to see him fight, for I could not imagine anybody foolish enough to invite his wrath. Such a man did develop but not until William was over sixty, gray-haired and ill. And even then it took two strong men to engage him fully. And when it was all over, the contest filled but a few seconds. One assailant could not be found, and the other had to call in a doctor to piece him together again. William did not have a mark. His troubles began when he went home to his quaint little old wife. In some strange way she divined that he had been fighting and soon drew the story from him. "'William McClintock,' she said severely, "Ain't not you old enough to keep your temper "'and not go brawling around like that "'and at a school-meeting, too?' "'William hung his head. "'Well, I dunno. "'I suppose my dyspepsy has made me kind of irritable,' "'he said, by way of apology. "'My father was the historian of most of these exploits "'on the part of his brother's-in-law.' for he loved to exalt their physical prowess, at the same time that he deplored their lack of enterprise and system. Certain of their traits he understood well, others he was never able to comprehend, and I am not sure that they ever quite understood themselves. A deep vein of poetry, of subconscious Celtic sadness, ran through them all. It was associated with their love of music and was wordless. Only hints of this endowment came out now and again and to the day of his death, my father continued to express perplexity and a kind of irritation at the curious combination of bitterness and sweetness, sloth and tremendous energy, slovenliness and exaltation, which made Hugh McClintock and his sons the jest and the admiration of those who knew them best. Undoubtedly to the Elwells and the Dudleys, as to most of their definite, practical, orderly, and successful New England neighbors. My uncles were merely a good-natured, easy-going lot of fiddlers. But to me, as I grew old enough to understand them, they became a group of potential poets, bards and dreamers, inarticulate and moody. They fell easily into somber silence. Even Frank, the most boisterous and outspoken of them all, could be thrown into sudden melancholy by a melody, a line of poetry, or a beautiful landscape the reason for this praise of their quality if the reason needs to be stated lies in my feeling of definite indebtedness to them they furnished much of the charm and poetic suggestion of my childhood most of what i have in the way of feeling for music for rhythm i derive from my mother's side of the house for it was almost certainly Celt in every characteristic she herself was a wordless poet a sensitive singer of sad romantic songs Father was by nature an orator, and a lover of the drama. So far as I am aware, he never read a poem if he could help it, and yet he responded instantly to music, and was instinctively courtly in manner. His mind was clear, positive, and definite, and his utterances fluent. Orderly, resolute, and thorough, in all that he did, he despised William McClintock's easy-going habits of husbandry and found David's lack of push, of business enterprise, deeply irritating. And yet he loved them both, and respected my mother for defending them. To me, in those days, the shortcomings of the McClintocks did not appear particularly heinous. All our neighbors were living in log houses and frame shanties, built beside the brooks, or set close against the hillsides, and William's small unpainted dwelling, seemed a natural feature of the landscape. But as the years passed, and other and more enterprising settlers built big barns and shining white houses, the gray and leaning stables, sagging gates and roofs of my uncle's farm, became a reproach even in my eyes, so that when I visited it for the last time just before our removal to Iowa, I, too, was a little ashamed of it. Its disorder did not diminish my regard for the owner but I wished he would clean out the stable and prop up the wagon shed. My grandmother's death came soon after our second visit to the homestead. I have no personal memory of the event, but I heard Uncle David describe it. The setting of the final scene in the drama was humble. The girls were washing clothes in the yard, and the silent old mother was getting the midday meal. David, as he came in from the field, stopped for a moment with his sisters, and in their talk, Samantha said, Mother, isn't at all well today? David, looking toward the kitchen, said, Isn't there some way of keeping her from working? You know how she is, explained Deborah. She's worked so long she don't know how to rest. We tried to get her to lie down for an hour, but she wouldn't. David was troubled. She'll have to stop sometime, he said. And then they passed to other things. Hearing, meanwhile, the tread of their mother's busy feet, suddenly she appeared at the door, a frightened look on her face. "'Why, mother, what is the matter?' asked her daughter. She pointed to her mouth and shook her head, to indicate that she could not speak. David leaped toward her, but she dropped before he could reach her. Lifting her in his strong arms, he laid her on her bed and hastened for the doctor. "'All in vain.' She sank into unconsciousness and died without a word of farewell. She fell like a soldier in the ranks. Having served uncomplainingly up to the very edge of her evening bivouac, she passed to her final sleep in silent dignity. End of chapter two